Welcome, everyone. Uh, you made it to uh, weekend three for track three. I was able to uh, address you guys um, during weekend two. Grateful to be back here uh, tonight uh, to uh, teach on church discipline and restoration. Um, now, this is a topic that uh, has... Uh, fallen out of vogue in the last 50 years or so. There are a lot of churches who don't practice this. Uh, there are a lot of Christians who are, who are confused about church discipline and restoration. And yet what I found is that the Bible has a whole lot to say about this topic. Um, and in God's providence, I as a pastor have had a whole lot of experience leading a church through church discipline and restoration. And what that means is uh, I've thought a lot about this. And what that means is I've got a lot of <laughs> material uh, to go through with you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us and then we're going to get into it. Oh God, we join with the Apostle Paul and call out for your glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, including our own generation, forever and ever. And Lord, we want you to be glorified, not only when things are going well for the members of a church, but when things are not going well, that you would give us wisdom to know how to handle that in a way that's pleasing to you. And so, Lord, I've, I've asked you to do a whole lot f with this time together. And, Lord, we're convinced that you're able to do far more abundantly more than that. And so we pray that you would help us to see your glory in church discipline and restoration. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In August of 2012, the famous cyclist Lance Armstrong, seven-time winner of the Tour de France, he announced that he was no longer going to contest the U.S. anti-doping agency's allegations that he and his teammates had used performance-enhancing drugs in violation of international cycling rules. The very next day, the USADA stripped Armstrong of all of his Tour de France titles and then imposed upon him a lifetime cycling ban. In the weeks that followed, Nike and Trek and Oakley all terminated their own endorsement relationships with Armstrong, costing him millions of dollars. They were invoking what is called the morals clause in contracts like these. Well, if how millionaire athletes behave matters... Should it matter how the kings and queens of heaven 
behave. Listen to what James 1 verse 26 says. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but he deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. In other words, if we profess to be a Christian, but we don't live lives that are changed by Christ. James is saying you shouldn't be taking comfort in your faith. The Apostle John in 1 John 2, 3 says, By this we know that we have come to know Christ if we keep His commandments. And yet it's a, it's a really common thing that because we as Christians were not saved by our works, We think because, and I believe this, God graciously saved us when we were sinners. We often conclude that believers should are okay to just give in to sin and the church should just accept it. Well, what if, what if God actually lays out a different way? For us to respond. I want to give you first a biblical introduction to church discipline. For that, we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. You have a Bible. I hope you have a Bible uh, here at the Biblical Counseling Conference. Hebrews uh, chapter 12. Uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 3. Listen to this. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves." And chastises every son whom he receives. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline. In which all have participated. Then you are illegitimate children. And not sons. And he gives the example of how we even discipline in our own homes. And God is disciplining in His home as well. God disciplines all His children. When we think about church discipline and restoration, we we start here with this expectation. God disciplines all His children. We, We take from Hebrews and other places that all God's children actively struggle against sin. There should be a struggle and not a giving over to sin. We know from Hebrews chapter 12 that God's discipline is an act of love. Look there in verse 6. The Lord disciplines the ones He loves. 
And the author of Hebrews in verses 7 through 10, he looks at our loving commitment to discipline our children. He says, that's an analogy. For God's discipline of us. If we do it out of love, because we love, why would we think God would love differently? Discipline is part of discipleship. It's part of discipleship. That that word discipline has the same root as the word we use for discipleship. So if, if discipleship is a term that means teaching others about Christ and to follow Christ, well, discipline is, is, it fits within that work. But it just employs, discipline employs some experience of pain or discomfort. Not necessarily physical pain when it comes to church discipline, obviously, but it, it, it uses discomfort to teach and to train those about Christ and to follow Christ. There is, we can tell this even in, in, in the way that we raise our, our young children, right? That, that when we discipline, we're trying to teach them something. We're trying to get them to associate disobedience, sin with pain. That is good for them to associate. When I sin, pain comes. And the pain of discipline trains them to not sin. Well, God has entrusted the discipline of His children to His church. Turn, turn to the left to Hebrews chapter three and listen to what the Lord says here about our relationships in the church. Chapter three, verse 12. What, what does God entrust to his church? He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. God entrusts the discipline of His children to His church. And Hebrews 3 teaches that Christians are saved from just selfishly being concerned for their own salvation to then taking care that others are doing well spiritually. As part of this introduction to biblical church discipline, I want you to think about discipline in two different forms. One is formative. The other is corrective. Formative and corrective. So formative discipline, it happens every time the scripture is taught. Uh, There's a forming that happens of disciples, uh, a reshaping of our understanding, 
and often calling us to change. Forming happens all the time, but corrective discipline is this other sort that is where we mainly identify with church discipline. It's when a believer is directly confronted with a call to repent. So let me give you kind of an outline for the rest of our time together. I want to give you two texts, two texts. I want to give you three targets and I want to give you nine tips, two texts, three targets, nine tips. I told you I've got a lot to cover, but let me give you uh, kind of a, um, a main point that you can take home. Jesus uses his church's discipline to restore repentance and to reveal rebellion. That uh, That's kind of a, a take home of what all the Bible teaches about church discipline. Jesus is actually using church discipline to do these two things, to restore those who are repentant, uh, to restore repentance and then to reveal rebellion. First of all, let's look at two texts that explain church discipline. The first text is in Matthew chapter 18. Uh, and here we're going to see in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, church discipline is there to rescue the rebel. We're already seeing before we even read it that this is a good thing. This is a gospel thing, church discipline. It rescues rebels. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. Listen, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you that everything that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered in my name. There am I among them. This first text is Matthew 18. And what we're going to see is the church church discipline rescues the rebel. The church should discipline, according to Jesus, the church should discipline unrepentant members. Church discipline is for a particular set of offenses that God has categorized as sin. That's what he says in verse 15. This is what you do when your brother sins against you. That means church discipline, and some some can go way off on this. Church discipline is not for personal grievances. It's not for offenses to our preferences. It is for things that God calls sin. Church discipline, we also can can see this already in Matthew 18, is for church members. Uh, That is to say, church discipline is not to be exercised on people who are just visiting our churches. Certainly not for people who are just in the community that we know are professing to be Christian. Church membership in a healthy church 
wonder if you believe this. Church membership is the process by which the church is discerning whether someone is a Christian, whether someone is a brother. And so it is for church members. And specifically, church, this one is for unrepentant church members. Now listen. Every human sins. Including Christians. Every Christian repents of sin. So, Christians belong in the large category of people called sinner. But within that category, there is a special subset that Christians belong within, and that is repenting sinner. Christians are distinguished from the entire world in this way. Listen, we have been saved. We are the people who have been saved from saying no to Jesus. We are the people who have been saved from doubting the wisdom of the Lord Jesus. That's what a Christian is. And so Jonathan Lehman in writing about the church says that the church is the assembly of the repentant. Church means assembly and is specifically the assembly of the of repentant. Now, Matthew 18 lays out for us a four-stage process for private offenses. Your brother sins against you. Four-stage process for private offenses. Stage one is the one who is offended. We see this in verse 15. The one who has been offended and sinned against goes to the one who offended them. It's a, it's a private thing. It's, uh, it's between two different believers. Often this happens um, even within a marriage, right? But, but it can happen within any, any kind of Christian to Christian situation. And listen, because we do not deny that Christians are sinners, that means we should be doing Matthew 18 verse 15 a lot. This first stage should actually be really common. What I mean is, uh, in a healthy church where people are dealing with sin the way God wants us to, where we're not leaning on our own understanding, but acknowledging him in all our ways, what we're going to see is a lot of confrontations like this that never are told to anyone else. It's just happening all the time. And when, when the one offended goes to the one who offended them, they are to notice, tell him his fault. It's not just tell them why you're hurt. Tell them you disagree. It's the aim is not to shame them for their sin. It's not to pay them back for their sin. Jesus tells us what the aim is, is to win back our brother. And they're to do this between the offended and the offender alone. It should remain private unless the one who's confronted holds on to their sin. 
And in that case, we're told to go to stage two, where two to three witnesses are now going to the offender in verse 16. Jesus is, is inclined to guard against some he said, she said kind of situation. We all understand people get hurt by each other and they have all kinds of versions of what's going on. And you have to get behind all that to figure out what's really happening. This is serious stuff. And so he tells them to take witnesses and he uses the language that we see in Moses. Where there's this precedent, one or two others now accompany the one who's been offended and they're there to be witnesses. They're there to determine, has sin really been committed? They're there to determine whether that one who committed the sin is repenting or not. And this is, this is the stage where often, you know, counseling is, is, is happening. Where two are disagreed and then more are brought in that might be elders of the church. Might be biblical counselors in the church. It doesn't have to be. It can just be members of the church. But what's happened now is there's this expanding exposure. It went from being private purely to this incremental exposure. And in the wisdom of Jesus, that is there, I think, to guard the one who is the offender from undue temptation, undue shame. So it's just a small amount of people, but also it communicates something to them. It's not just one person who thinks I'm wrong. It's progressively revealing this is serious in hopes of leading to their repentance. Again, looking to win back the brother. The question is, what does that mean? If he listens, then you've won back your brother. I think you know that cannot mean that the the unrepentant sinner is just being polite to wait until our spiel is over. They've just listened. For Jesus, listening always includes obedience. It's turning from the sin. If they repent and put down their sin... They're recognized again as a brother. God actually lays out for us in Second Corinthians chapter seven, um, I think a helpful kind of what we should look for when we find what repentance is. Uh, listen to Second Corinthians chapter seven, and I want to lay out for you three things. That is included when, when someone repents. Listen to Second Corinthians 7, starting in verse 9. Paul says, I rejoice um, when I confronted you in sin, church in Corinth, not because you were grieved, but I rejoice because you were grieved into repenting. You felt a godly grief. So you actually didn't suffer any loss through us. Listen, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness. So he's laying out these, these different things that you'll see in someone who, if, they're, if, if you're winning them back. This 
earnestness. They're taking their sin seriously. Their eagerness to clear themselves. You don't have to lay out for me all that I need to do to make this right. I'm going to do it. I want to make it right. Zacchaeus, think of, think of that example. What indignation. They're the ones who were offended by their sin. What fear of the Lord, a desire not to sin again. What longing, a longing to be reconciled. Is there any way you can forgive me? What zeal, there's a righteous zeal and determination. I'm going to see this all the way through. What punishment? Again, you don't have to punish me. I feel worst about my sin. And Paul says at every point you proved yourself innocent in the matter. So three things I think we should look for when we look for winning our brother back and actual listening is one is contrition. They have sorrow. They're contrite over their sin. Two is confession. They're agreeing with God about about the sinfulness of the sin. But then also consecration. Consecration. That's an action that shows that they are willing to do things to, uh, you could say, Matthew chapter three, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. My life is going to change. Now I'm consecrated to this new direction. Charles Spurgeon put it like this. You can see these three different aspects of repentance in this quote. Repentance requires a discovery of the evil of sin that, that lines up with confession a mourning that we have committed it that lines up with contrition and a resolution to forsake it that lines up with consecration. Stage three, back in Matthew 18, the church then is going to the one who is the offender. This is serious. If the first two confrontations do not produce a godly grief leading to repentance, then Jesus Christ commands the whole church now needs to get involved. Practically speaking, whenever we've gone through this as a church, I'm up there calling the church. The elders are calling it. We want every one of you to care about this. You didn't know about it. I'm sorry you're having to adjust to this information now, but we've kept it private because Jesus has told us to keep it private. Now we're in a situation you need to pray. Telling it to the church. And if you have a close relationship with this person, then you have influence. We want to encourage you to consider reaching out to them and calling them to repentance. If you need help with that, please come to the elders. We can help equip you for that ministry. But the church goes to the offender. And then stage four, the church removes the unrepentant offender from membership, from membership. We see this in the language that Jesus lays out for us when he says, if he doesn't listen even to the church, then let him be to you in your consideration of him. Let him be to you as a Gentile and the tax collector. A Gentile. They understood that. That was a person who was outside the people of faith. Treat him like an unbeliever. And a tax collector. Why add a tax collector? Well, they understood that too. A tax collector was an Israelite who worked for the Roman government. 
collecting taxes from God's people to finance the enemy. They were traitors. And so he's saying, you should consider and think of this one as someone who is not just an unbeliever, but someone who's betrayed the one they were to be faithful to. This is serious. Now, what, what do I think the church is doing when, when we're treating them like a Gentile tax collector? I think it's this. We remove them from membership. What, we're, what membership is, is this church, so far as we can tell, recognizes that this person belongs to the Lord. Their, their profession of faith is credible. When you remove someone from membership, what you're saying is, we can no longer say that. We can no longer say that. Now, what church discipline is not doing is declaring with certainty that person's going to hell. You got to get this. That's not a declaration that's made in, in church discipline. We know you're not a Christ follower. That's not what we say. We just say our job is to discern a credible profession of faith and your unrepentance has called into question that. So we can no longer affirm that you are a believer. Now, this is not the church saying we don't ever want you to come to church. It's excommunication or excommunion taken out of the privilege of membership, which is the Lord's Supper. That's what excommunication is. We want them at church. We want them to hear the gospel. We want them to repent. But we're not to allow them to take communion because they would be claiming a submission to the Lord that their unrepentance is denying at the same time. Now, this is serious. And part of what I mean is a church's discipline here carries heavenly authority. That's this business in verses 18 through 20 about the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom. So listen, this is, this is how Jesus describes his church. The church has the keys in his kingdom. It, it is as if you can imagine a castle of the king. And in the bottom of the castle, there's a dungeon. And in that dungeon are all the prisoners of the king. They are bound by chains to the wall waiting for execution. That's the way Jesus describes really the whole world. Everyone's there down in chains. But then he gives his officers the keys of the kingdom to go down to those who are awaiting execution, awaiting their sentence, and to offer them forgiveness. Will you follow the king? Will you trust him? And those who profess faith in Christ, they take the keys of the kingdom and turn the lock to loose them from judgment, to free them from judgment. That's covered in Matthew 16, the keys of the kingdom used in that way. Then he says it again in Matthew 18. Now, what he's saying in Matthew 18 is if that person who was freed from judgment goes upstairs and instead of enjoying life and freely serving the king, they stop by the armory and they pick up weapons 
to defy the king. Then Jesus is saying, you have the keys of the kingdom, church. Verse 18, when he says you who have the keys of the kingdom, he's talk. it's a plural you. It's not just talking to the apostles there. That's right after he says that the church who's gathered takes this last step in discipline and turns heaven's keys. We're to go to the one who is rebelling against the Lord and say, why, are you, why do you have a sword in your hand? Why would you rebel against the king? Drop the sword and serve the king. And if he still holds on to the sword, the church is to take them back down to the dungeon and to bind them for judgment. That's what he's saying. Look in verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. Now, have churches done this wrongly? Church discipline. Yes, they have. Have churches abused their power and how they've done this? Yes. That does not mean we should not discipline. A church who responds to sin differently is in disobedience to Jesus. And when a church does this faithfully, something real is happening. Christ is the one disciplining whenever his church disciplines. Look, when he says in verse 20, when two or three are gathered in my name, he's not legitimizing small prayer meetings, right? Somehow we talk about verse 20 like that's what he's talking. That's not what he's talking about. He's referring, he's saying in stage two, when two or three are going, I'm right there. I want you to look, look right before our passage. Look in chapter 10 or chapter 18, verse 10. Look at what he says right before he lays out this process. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now, and, and Matthew, I'm just going to, you just have to trust me on this. You can look in the rest of the chapter, but little ones are a reference to disciples. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that he went astray, that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these disciples should perish if your brother sins against you. So. What what does this give us? I think this is telling us that church discipline is how Jesus rescues rebels. Now, I've, I've made a drawing for you tonight. Um, and it's to represent how a lot of people who don't like discipline talk about discipline. This is my drawing. On the left there, you have green pastures, which represents the church. You know, you imagine a bunch of sheep there. 
the way that people talk about, what, what is this a picture of? Well, what, what's happening to the sheep? He got kicked out of that church. That's the way people who don't like discipline talk about excommunication. Is some angry, mean shepherd, pastor, kicks that sheep over the fence and, and they're just really hurt. Why would you ever do this to me? Now, how has God been describing Matthew 18? Don't you love my drawings? Come on, guys. Give me some. Give me just a little bit of credit here. All right. The way Jesus describes this is that one jumped the fence. They ran away from the good shepherd. They ran away from the church. They went out and they may not have known this, but something about the wolves in the wilderness. The wilderness is dangerous. Jesus is saying there's wolves out there. There's cliffs out there. You could fall to your death. There's no water out there. Stay with the good shepherd. Church discipline is not about kicking anyone out of our church. It's not an act of aggression against an innocent rebel. It's our acknowledgement of their rebellion. And not only that, church discipline is us going out with Jesus. Two or three sheep are jumping over that fence and they're going into the wilderness with Let's say a pastor with them and then that cross is Jesus. And what we're doing to the sheep who's in deadly danger is, is we're pleading with them. Come back. There are wolves out here. There's cliffs out here. You're not going to find any water. You're not going to find any food. Why would you stay out here? Come back to the Lord Jesus. This is why I say Jesus is the one using This is the good shepherd going out. This is what he's saying. I'm the one who goes out and leaves the 99. I'm the one who goes and rescues rebels. Jesus uses church discipline to restore repentance and to reveal rebellion. So what what we understand now is that Christ has a recipe. He has a way to restore the rebel. And yet many churches come up with another way and they call it loving when the church in Corinth did that other way God calls it arrogant let me lead you to the second main text it's 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 listen to Paul Starting in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexually immora- sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. Sorry, 1 Corinthians 5. I don't know if I said 1 Corinthians. Sorry about that. Listen to Paul. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. 
For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. This sounds like Matthew 18. In the presence of Jesus, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. This is Paul's inspired words. This is what you do. You deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And then look in, in verse 9 and following. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. That's exactly what's going on in First Corinthians 5. But it's not just sexually immoral people. He lists a whole list of other sins that, that, that 1 Corinthians 5 applies to. And it ends with verse 12. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So let me quickly go through. 1 Corinthians 5, which teaches church discipline removes threats. The situation in 1 Corinthians 5 is there's a member of the church who's sleeping with their stepmother. 1 Corinthians 5 is the same context for the discipline. It is the church that is called the discipline. The apostle himself, he, 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 he doesn't have the authority that the church does. He doesn't say, I've already done it, don't worry about it. He says, when you are assembled, this is what you're to do. But this, there's a different process in 1 Corinthians 5 than we saw in Matthew 18. In 1 Corinthians 5, it's not a, pro, uh, uh, it's not a process at all. It's immediate excommunication. There are things about this sin that's being committed that warrant not going through a process. This, the nature of the sin is scandalous. It's public. He, Paul can't even believe it. It is actually reported to me that one of your church members is having an affair with his stepmother. It's scandalous. The, the pagans don't even tolerate this. It's also severe. Paul is shocked by this. And again, it's not just this one sin where we should employ 1 Corinthians 5. We have in verses 9 through 11 a list of other sins that come to characterize a person that are totally inappropriate for believers. There are offenses that members can commit that call for immediate excommunication. He says, purge the evil person from among you. They're not to wait to see if this guy repents. They're not even to ask. If, if he admits it's wrong and if he stops immediately, it doesn't stop this process. This sin is so contrary to his confession of faith that repentance, listen, sometimes it's too hard to read quickly. And that's why I think it's different here. Uh, my, did I get ahead here? Sorry. Same. The, the, there's the same result here. It's removal from membership. Is that? Are we caught up on your? We're not. 
That's where we are. I may be out of I may be out of order here. Hold on. Hold up. Hold up. Hold up. Great. Remember, he calls them arrogant. Do you know what First Corinthians thirteen? You know what? Who knows what First Corinthians thirteen is about? It's the love chapter. Verse four says, "Love is not arrogant." That means when churches are thinking this is loving to ignore sin and God calls them arrogant and they're doing it for the sake of love, he's saying you're not loving. Church discipline removes the threat of arrogance. It also removes the threat of deception. We believe that the heart is deceitful above all things. We believe that there's a deceiver out there. In verse 5, he's referenced as being... as, as, as the one who we deliver this person over to. We want them not to be deceived, so we want them to see clearly, look, you're, not, you're outside of the safety of the church now. You're in the realm of the enemy. The text clearly communicates that all Christians are to have this kind of relationship with the local church. Let me prove that to you. All Christians are to have this kind of relationship with the local church. Look in verse 12. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. I want you to find the synonym for Christian. How does Paul describe, what word does he use for a Christian in verse 12? He, he divides the whole world into two categories. What are they? Insiders and outsiders. Who does God judge? Outsiders. What he's saying is a Christian, God just assumes, is a person who is inside a church that does discipline. It's just assumed that we're to have this kind of relationship with the local church. Now, the good news of this is the local church is like an assurance of salvation co-op. This is what the local church is in the, in the mind of God. We are trying to help one another to heaven. We're trying, you can actually have confidence if you are a faithful member in a healthy church, you can have confidence that you truly are a Christian, that you're not deceived. Church discipline, according to 1 Corinthians 5, sorry guys. Yeah, I'm trying to, I'm getting going. Y'all hitting the brakes. Can we go? Goody. Church discipline removes the threat of spreading sin. Look in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Listen, when it comes to my carbs, I don't know about you, but I want them big and fluffy. I want them big and fluffy, my loaves of bread, but I don't want the church big and fluffy. I don't want to let leaven spread through the church. Leaven starts small. Maybe it's just one person who's sinning, but Paul gives this image of leaven getting bigger and bigger, that sin is ambitious. It always spreads. And if you don't do this, sin will spread throughout the whole lump. The whole church. Church discipline removes the threat of defaming Christ. 
and the threat of dullness in the church. It's really fascinating what he says in verse 7. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us celebrate the festival. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity in and truth. It defames our Passover lamb if we don't do this. And it makes church dull when it should be a celebration. All right, two main texts. Let me give you three targets real quickly. Kind of a summary of uh, these two passages. We do church discipline with the target of doing good to the sinner. First Corinthians 5 verse 5 said, so that his soul may be saved. Matthew 18 says, so that you can win back your brother who's out there. A second target is the guarding of the church so that the church would not fall into sin and think we can sin and be safe. First Timothy 5 says you, you do discipline in such a way where the rest stand in fear. That's not, you know, when you do church discipline in a church, it's not like everyone else is just sitting there feeling all proud and arrogant. When they see someone else excommunicated for their unrepentant sin, the rest stand in fear. When we excommunicated somebody and we were doing it in first Corinthians five kind of style, there was a member of the church the secretary of the church who was really offended and wanted to meet. And we talked through, this is what God's word is saying. We are called to be holy. We're called to honor our sacrificial lamb. He's freed us from slavery, just like the lamb did in Exodus. He's freed us. We need to flee from sin. And she sat there and she said, I just realized just now, the secretary of the church, okay, my staff member, I realized just now, I have not been living for Christ. And she was converted right then and there. The glory of Jesus is our target. The glory of Jesus. The church that stands for sin slanders the lamb. Discipline is like a sermon. And it preaches... Jesus' blood is enough to save you. Jesus' blood is enough to free you from sin. He is glorified through discipline. Let me, with the rest of our time, the next 10 minutes, I'll give you nine tips for church discipline. We've done two texts. We've got three targets. I'm going to give you nine tips for doing church discipline. Number one, Deal first with your own sin. Um, so contrary to those who would argue against this, and, and I've heard this in members meetings when we've done church discipline, judge not lest you be judged. Matthew 7. And then you see in 1 Corinthians 5, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? I don't think God is confused or changing his mind. I think these belong, these fit together. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter seven? Judge not lest ye be judged. When he says that, he's talking about the way that you judge is the way you should be judged. 
And then he lays out a different way to judge, not being judgmental and holding people to account that you're not willing to be held to account. He says what? In, in verse three, take the log out of your own eye first and then you will be able to see clearly so that you may take out the, lo- the speck in your brother's eye. But you start with confessing your own sin. Often, whenever we've excommunicated someone from our church, we do this throughout the process, but we even do it after the process. Where when someone's been excommunicated, we, we publicly confess our own sins. There's a time of private confession and public confession. We recognize we're sinners as well. The second thing is let love control you. Let love control you. And I'm going to actually turn to Galatians chapter six. If there was a third main text that I would want to use in teaching about church discipline, it'd be Galatians chapter six, which reads this way. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul defines the law of Christ as the law of love. So what he's saying is let the love of Christ control you throughout the process. Christ loved sinners. So he was willing to bear the burden of sinners so that they might be restored to him. And what he's saying here is we now bear their burdens. Bear one another's burdens. And in that way, you fulfill the law of Christ. Bear the burden of their sin. The love of Christ won't let us leave our brothers and sisters in sin. Third tip, aim for their restoration. And we've seen this throughout in Matthew 18, it's their restoration. First Corinthians five, it's so that they'd be saved in the day of the Lord. In Galatians six, it's the same thing. Restore them. Aim for their restoration. You're going to have to be really careful not to aim for your vindication. You're going to have to be really careful that you're not after their punishment. We want their restoration. Number four, pray. Pray. Restoring the rebel. Bringing them back to repentance. Well, listen, it's impossible. It's impossible. And with God, all things are possible. So when he says, you who are spiritual should restore the one who's caught in any transgression. You who are spiritual 
should do this in a spirit of gentleness when he refers to the law of Christ, which is love. Spiritual gentleness, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's right before this passage. It's right before this passage. What he's saying is the fruit of the Spirit is available even when someone is caught in sin. And you who are spiritual are those who are walking by the Spirit. And by the Spirit, you can do this gently. And by the Spirit, you can be controlled by love. And by the Spirit, this impossible task can happen. He can actually be restored. So we pray, Spirit, help. Number five, when you go and do this, address their sin. We've said this already. Tell them their fault. Galatians 6 If anyone is caught in any transgression, he doesn't mean if anyone is caught transgressing your personal convictions. He's not saying, do they spend time like you think they should? He's not saying, do they spend their money the way that you do? He's not saying, do they parent the way that you do? He's not even saying, did they hurt your feelings? If they're caught in sin, you address that. Number six, choose your words carefully. Choose your words carefully. Ephesians chapter four, verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Choose your words carefully. Let me give you two two specific ways to do this. Use scripture, use scripture. Make sure they come face to face with the mirror, right? The the scriptures, according to James 1, are like this mirror that, that can actually reveal what a person is really like. Use scripture, hold up the mirror, but then also choose your words carefully, not just use God's words, but ask questions, ask questions. This is just a good principle. I don't remember who I first heard this from, but you've probably heard it. Accusations harden the will, but questions convict the conscience. Accusations harden the will. Don't just go accusing. You did this. But ask questions. They convict the conscience. Questions, they they require this kind of self-evaluation. It's like God in the garden. Where he asks Adam, where are you? He's giving him a chance to turn back. I gotta pick it up, guys. Watch yourself. Watch yourself. Galatians 6, verse 1. Take watch yourself. If you do this, you're gonna face all kinds of temptations to sin. You're going to face pride because you're not struggling with sin the way that they do. Maybe you respond to conviction better than they do. You're going to face the temptation to respond in anger when they respond in anger. You're going to face temptation to gossip and slander. Watch yourself. Number eight, bear their reproach. Bear their reproach. Some sheep in the wild, they bite. They will accuse you and they will resent you for doing this. 
Do not chase their approval. Bear their reproach. And don't take it personally. Second Corinthians 5, right? We are ambassadors of Christ. Making our, God is making His appeal to you through us. Don't take it personally. Bear their reproach. And then finally, don't give up. Don't give up. Some will immediately soften when this is done. And we all rejoice at that. Some take a while. Some don't ever turn. You will grow weary doing this. Let me tell you, you will grow weary doing this good. You're risking yourself. You're sacrificing yourself. They're accusing you. They're being hateful. They're slandering others. There's threat to the church. More times than I can count, I've told the elders of our church and I've told my wife, I don't want to do it anymore. If you're going to be faithful, you're going to face that. And then remember, we don't do this because people ask us to do this. We don't do this just because someone is totally ready for us to do this. We don't do this only when it so-called works. We do this because Jesus has told us to do this. And because he loved us like that. So don't give up. All right. Jesus uses church discipline to restore repentance and to reveal rebellion. Uh, we are like a minute over, but are there, is there one or two questions you have? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually very common. And Jesus has told us what to do. So if they don't listen to us or even give us a chance, then sometimes we have to proceed. They cannot, by their unwillingness, stop the process. You just, yeah, you go to the, you try with multiple people and then you go to the last step. Yep. Another question? Sometimes, like if they stole $1,000, you say, give, give us it back. Give it back. And if they don't do it, all we have, we don't have a timeline. We just have take the next step. If they listen, then you want them back. And if they don't listen, you go to the next step. Uh, if, if they filed for divorce and they have no grounds for divorce, you say, hey, let's stop that process. And then you wait for them to do all the necessary steps to stop that process. That's a time element to it. Then you move on if they don't. Some, some sins are different. Um, where we've taken and these, this process, some of the process we've taken years. We can be in stage two for years, and we have been. But all we're ter- told in terms of when to do what is, did you win them back or not? And the sin itself and what repentance looks like can be a factor in what repentance looks like. All right. Hey, thank you guys. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your, uh, for guiding us through your word. We pray that you would help us to be faithful and to trust you through church discipline. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen.